This week on One Body, Stewarding God's Creation, George Toman talks about holiness through mass postures. One body. What is the meaning of the postures we do and where do they come from? What about postures meant for the priest? One body, stewarding God's creation. We'll answer this and more. George Toman is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Kelly Roper. All right, so now we are going to welcome our next guest, George Toman. George, are you there? I am. Ah, excellent. Thank you so much for, for being with us this morning on Divine Mercy Radio. By way of introduction, George Toman is currently a doctoral student at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln studying special education. He is a graduate of Fort, Fort Hayes State University and has contributed to the One Body Show here on Divine Mercy Radio and even hosted a past carathon. George has a passion for sharing the faith with others. Welcome, George. Thank you. I appreciate it. Very good. So, so um, I'm told just introduce the topic holiness through mass postures, and you're going to take it from there. So, you know, so often, you know, people wonder. You know, it's like when, especially when you come first to the church, up, down, up, down, up, down. You know, mm-hmm. and and all of that. So, but there is a purpose. There's a purpose for everything. So, I'm excited to to talk with you about that. So, where would you like to start? You bet. Yeah. No, it's um. You know, when we properly understand what's happening in the Mass, I think that we can gain, well, I know this for a fact, we can gain a a greater appreciation for just how significant everything is. And a lot of times, fortunately, if you're the typical Catholic in the pew, you you probably haven't had anyone, unfortunately, walk you through why we do certain things at certain times at the Mass. Now, that's changed over the years, at least a little bit, um, especially with better access to, to sources like Catholic Radio and, and, and books and all of that. Uh, but for a while, we did what we did because that's what we were told, or that's what our families have always done for, for a long time. And when we really understand the Mass, and I'll start off by by talking about this important piece, that when we realize that the Mass itself is a a re-representation of Jesus Christ crucified, that literally we are there at Calvary with St. John and our Blessed Lady, there at the cross, which is the moment of our our salvation, the moment of the beginning of of um, what we just celebrated in terms of the, the Paschal Mystery, we begin to understand with a little deeper detail that we're not just trying to remember what happened in the past per se, but in a very spiritual and real way, we are there. Mm. We, we are literally there in the truest sense of the word of memorial. So when we understand it in that sense, this is where from our other Protestant brothers and sisters in the faith, we set we have we have a separation in our worship because others don't have this same position and so when we think about all we do at mass and especially what happens during mass it becomes really important then to realize okay so if this really is the re-representation of calvary if this really is 
me in a very spiritual way, in a very realistic way that cannot be comprehended completely by by human senses, but only obtained through through faith, then why do we do what we do? You know, walk walk through why those why we like you you alluded to. I you know some have called it the you know. Um, the Catholic workout, right? Up, down, up, down, <laughs> yeah. you know, walking across, all those other kind of things. Yeah. Why do those things exist? So we'll start generally by saying that the Church is very clear that, um, I should say this, the Church has guidelines in the form of what we call a, the, a general instruction. So it's technically called the general instruction of the Roman Missal. It is essentially the the book and guidelines, if you will, actually it's more guidelines, that big book that the priest has at, at the front that the altar server um, provides to him for the opening prayer, the very opening of that book has all of these instructions, which allows the priest, basically, you read it through front to back, you'll know how to say to say Mass um, in the way that the Church asks him to. Mm-hmm. And because of that, that means that there's a standardized procedure that the Church explicitly tells priests that they cannot change under their own initiative. And here's the direct quote from that general instruction, is that a priest must remember that he is the servant of the sacred liturgy, and that he himself is not permitted on his own initiative to add, remove, or change anything in the celebration of Mass. Which is, obviously that's a really tough line from the Church, saying that, hey, there, there's not a lot of wiggle room, you got you got to follow what we tell you. And some might interpret that as very strict, but really, when you think about it, it's a blessing, because this allows the Catholic faithful, so that whether I'm in Hayes, Kansas, or Lincoln, Nebraska, or Oakley, or Wichita, Lawrence, or if I'm in Washington, D.C., and I go to a Catholic parish that's truly Catholic, then what you're going to see is at least 90 to 95 percent of it will be something you've seen in your hometown or somewhere else. Um, and that's really nice because, again, that shows the the unity and the universality of the church, which is essentially what um, the the general instruction also notes is that this consistency shows that unity of faith um, in 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 a very profound way. But we must also be careful. Truly really motivated why I wanted to say this as part of our talk for the Carathon: Holiness is not for wimps. We've got to be careful not to be to act irreverently or engage in an empty formalism of the actions asked of us at Mass. Everything we do has meaning, and understanding that meaning is an essential part of our active participation at Mass. Put another way, acting the way the Church asks of us at Mass will transform our lives in a profound manner, both internally and externally. Mm -hmm. And we don't have time to go through everything in the Mass, I would take at least half half a day to do it with justice anyway. But we'll give some highlights here of important things um, and be as fair as we can, too, about what the Church actually teaches and what she leaves um, kind of open for, for pastoral needs as well. Yes. So when we think of... So after... I'll put it this way. After Vatican II, and in a couple decades after that, in 1997, there was a document released by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith titled On Certain Questions Regarding the Collaboration of the Non-Ordained Faithful in the Sacred Ministry of Priest. Long title, but here's what, it, here's what that document did. It, that it thoroughly explained the appropriate roles 
of the ordained and non-ordained at Mass, including why following the rubrics or the things that we do, why that was imperative um, in context of celebrating the sacred liturgy. The document says, and I quote, certain practices have been have often been developed which have had serious negative consequences and have caused the correct understanding of true ecclesial communion to be damaged. So basically what this document was made was for the people that weren't following the script, if you will, um, and that could be unfortunately both priests and, and lay people who are, who are part of some of those communities, Universal Church, which which she 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 does on occasion to help correct course of the ship, if you will, decided to provide a formal document, basically saying some of these things that have happened, we need to basically stop. And so, some of you actually might be old enough to remember kind of what happened pre post nineteen ninety seven, or noticed it at least in your church some changes um, that had to occur because of the publication of, of this document just mentioning that this document outlined, at the time, things that were not appropriate that needed to be corrected immediately, which is very good because the Church is well aware that as change happens, sometimes maybe some people don't read the directions as clearly as they should, or because of whatever factors, political, um, uh, cultural, whatever, that sometimes certain practices just kind of uproot themselves, and it's difficult to, um, without again, without the formal saying, hey, you can't do it, it's difficult to, to get rid of them with just teaching alone. So that's what this document provided. And like I said, for some of you, you would actually probably remember some of these changes um, as well. So a couple of the big things that were covered there is, and maybe the big one is that for the, the postures reserved solely for the priest, the lay faithful and deacons are not to join him. So in other words, in the Mass, there are, sp- there are specific postures that the priest um, does that only he alone should do because of what they signify. So an example would be during communion, when the priest lays his hands over the unconsecrated bread and wine at that point at the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer, you will notice, if you, if you pay particular attention, if you have a deacon there present, You'll notice that the deacon is typically standing. The rest of us are kneeling at the time. The altar servers are also kneeling. And when the priest puts his hands over the bread and wine to begin the process of invoking the Holy Spirit down to purify and also to make holy the gifts that um, that are there, the deacon immediately kneels. Mm. It's actually a moment that's very important in that he helped the deacon helps us understand. Oh, something special is happening. And in some parishes, a, a light ringing of the bells occurs if the altar servers are trained to do so. Now, notice that that deacon, who is an ordained minister, but not a priest, he is an ordained minister, he does not join the priest in that action of laying over his his hands over the gifts. If there are con-celebrating priests or other priests that are there on the altar with the primary celebrant, you will notice that they will, in an action, use typically one, sometimes both hands, over the gifts as well, showing that unity of the priesthood, but not the deacon. So the reason why I say that is because that's one moment where that posture of laying the hands over the the unconsecrated gifts to invoke the Holy Spirit to about what's about ready to happen, which is Christ coming down truly in the presence of, 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 of um, his body and blood 
um, there in the Eucharist, that action is solely for the priest, and we were not to, quote-unquote, mimic that. And there were times prior to 1997, and I'm sure, I have never seen it, but I'm sure that there's probably somewhere in the world where maybe some people are very misinformed and may still, still, still do that. But the point, the reason why the Church brought it out was because, and I quote, neither deacons nor non-ordained members of the faithful are to use gestures or actions are appropriate to the same priest celebrant. It is a grave abuse for any member of the ordained, non-ordained faithful, excuse me, to quasi-preside at the Mass. And thankfully, at least in my experience, I haven't seen any of that um, in terms of at least a, a properly said Mass where there be essentially lay faithful acting like a quasi-presider. But unfortunately, it did happen. Yeah. So that was a big change that the Church wanted to formally say, the priest has an important role, you have an important role, but we just can't intermingle them, per se, um, in the way that maybe it was. And then again, in that way, uh, very much. Another action to to help maybe people understand, because um, I said a lot there, is during the Eucharistic prayer, when the priest is reciting it, notice that he recites it alone, or um, in tandem with his brother priest, um, if they are concelebrating. The deacon does not join the priest in the Eucharistic prayer, um, and neither do the lay faithful join. We have specific responses that that we do at specific times, but we don't join the exact words of the priest. We can follow along in our books, but we don't follow his words exactly. And that's another ex- posture or or action that is solely reserved for the priest and must be respected in that sense. Yeah. And again, I haven't seen anything. Abuse. I haven't seen anything where. Uh, I guess the only time I would have seen something where maybe a layperson says something they shouldn't have, it was never done out of malice. Um, I saw it actually not recently. Um, haven't seen the person again though, so maybe that was <laughs> maybe that was circumstantial. But. Um, during the doxology, the through him, with him, and in him, that line that the priest says. Um, I was at a Mass recently, daily Mass, and there was someone in the congregation that um, joined the priest in saying it, and, and none to say that was one of the first times I've ever seen that, but um, that, wasn't, that wasn't supposed to be done. When the priest says those words solely to, to him, um, as instructed in the Missal, then we um, we are not to join him because that is solely for um, for his recitation and not ours. Yeah. Um, real quick, a, co- a couple other things too with this because um, that was a big one. But some changes that happened in '97 too. The lay faithful are not permitted to give homilies at mass. So prior to prior to that, there were times where maybe the priest and again it may have been under good uh, under good intention at the time. Uh, maybe had someone in the crowd come up that has some expertise on this particular passage or had a story to say, and rather than the priest saying the homily, the lay person um, would come and 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 do some kind of talk during that time. Um, and so for homilies, uh, due to their faculties, only priests and, and deacons can give homilies formally, and the Church clarified that, that no homilies are specifically a reflection of Jesus Christ and his preaching ministry, and therefore it must be reserved for the ordained minister. And another one, too, that um, that, that that was really important is lay faithful aren't to wear liturgical vestments. So the same things the priest wears or the deacon wears, we're not supposed to wear them. And I know that 
that doesn't happen, I don't think, much at all, except in masses that are technically invalid at that point. But the but at some at one point, you may have seen a choir per, uh, processing, which choirs processing in isn't a bad thing. But if the choir processes in and they have a bunch of chasubles and other Catholic garb that look like a priest, that that's that's a no no. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, unfortunately, in some parts of the world, these things were occurring. So the the church. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith specifically pointed out this document to point out some of those some of those abuses and reminded us essentially. If you read the document, the first I would say two thirds of it is literally just a catechetical explanation of of the summary that I gave earlier, which is it's important to remember that though all actively participate in mass, there are specific roles and functions that, when they are truly embraced, they truly bring out that 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 element of, I don't want to call it sanctification, because there's obviously grace there, but but it brings the element of, of cohesion, of unity, that is necessary to really understand what's going on, which, again, I think is really, really, really powerful that the Church is willing to um, put herself out like that and be like, no, you know, we got to get rid of some of these abuses, and she's always done that throughout history, of course, but we need to remember why we do what we do. And this is one document of the many that are out there, but it's the one I wanted to just briefly talk about. Because now as we talk about we talked about the Mia Culpa uh with the with the um with our opening question this morning, what is that movement of, you know, um striking our breast signifying that and that's perfect, right? The idea that in the very opening parts of mass we understand that because of original sin, because of our fallen nature, that we are prone to sin as a community, we come in full confidence to God's mercy that he can heal us and make us better. And so even before that, when we go into church, and a lot of us do this, but I think it's always nice to to remember, prior to entering a pew before um, a tabernacle, when our Lord is present in the tabernacle, so our little line is always look for that little red candle. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you see that and there's a tabernacle there, Jesus is present, right? Um, it's appropriate for us to genuflect with one knee if we are physically capable. On the flip side, if Jesus is exposed in the Blessed Sacrament for adoration purposes, and you see the monstrous on the altar, or you're entering a chapel and he's present, if you are physically possible, it is appropriate to genuflect with both knees touching the ground. And if you can't make that gesture due to physical needs, a profound bow is appropriate there um, as well. When when our hands during Mass, um, it's important that we try to avoid just putting them in our pockets or crossing them over our chest or whatever, um, to have our prayers in a prayerful position um, because of the, of the significance of what we're doing. And this is something that I learned recently as part of my little study in this. So in for 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 those of you who who've been around a while, you remember that at, at a time when the holy name of Jesus was said, when um our lady's name was said, and if you in certain times when the saint of the day was said, that the priest would bow, and the congregation would bow, too. What I didn't realize, and of course, this is just me and my ignorance, but the church never got rid of that. 
(laughs) And in the rubrics, it still says that when the holy name of Jesus is said, um, when the saint of the day is said, when the name of our Blessed Lady is said, um, essentially, at that moment, a a short bow um, uh, signifying the holiness of of those names is, is appropriate at that time. So basically, in the in simplest terms that I can give, um, whenever you hear the name of Jesus, whether it be through song or you're actually reciting his name, um, a simple bow and gesture, the Church actually not only um, still allows it, but um, formally says it encourages it, too. So I didn't know that uh, personally. I knew that that was a practice that um, was, was once very popular and then kind of went away. And then after doing a little bit of research, it's still there. It just maybe I didn't read it close enough or heard it close enough from others. So um, we get to the second half. I'll talk a little bit about some specific postures that are important um, and also kind of get into the weeds a little bit and be fair about kind of what what we should think about when we're doing them as well. Um, Again, all for the purpose of helping us to grow in holiness as we actively participate in that. We need to take a short break right now. But stay tuned to One Body, Stewarding God's Creation. We'll be right back with more from George Toman on Holiness Through Mass Postures. One Body, Stewarding God's Creation. We're back on One Body, Stewarding God's Creation on Divine Mercy Radio. Holiness Through Mass Postures. George Toman. One body, God's creation. Kelly Roper conducts the interview. All right, so let's go back to, to George Toman. I think I asked you questions about the whys of, of, of what we're doing. Yep, and that's a, a really good question. And, and the, the reasons why are based on Scripture. The reasons why are based are part of our ancient tradition. So the things that we do were actually the things the, the apostles did. Um, one of the better examples that I have, or I should say analogies, is comparing the um, the the mass and the, the roles between the priest and the lay faithful as kind of like a dance to a degree, mm-hmm. where the priest leads us in the dance and we are the ones following. Uh, we can't both be leaders and we can't both be followers. But in order to do the dance well, we both have to know our respective parts. Um, especially in complex parts of dancing. For those of you who, who are very nimble at your feet and know what I'm talking about, the some of the, the dance moves, we are expecting the leader to do certain things and trusting them to to do them so that not only can we pull off the dance move, but also uh, even in, in a very in a very sincere way that we remain safe, right? You know, I'm thinking of some some of the swing dance moves, you know, where people <laughs> are, you know, you know, um I forgot the place in Hayes now that that does the dancing, but the um, but but yeah. So the, there's that there's that combination of just understanding our our specific roles and also that a lot of these things that we do are based upon the traditions of the church, and that's why it's so profound. Is because what we do and why we do it are all based on the apostles, Christ, and the wisdom of the church. It's not like some pope which has been refuted, of course, but there was a time where people just believed that, well, the Pope makes all these rules up, and 
Catholics are just a bunch of pawns that just follow them, and they have no idea what they're doing. And that's completely 100% wrong. Um, In fact, as what we mentioned earlier, um, these traditions that the priests are not to add, remove, or change anything in the celebration of the Mass, the Church makes it very clear that there is no there is there is very little room for you know um, substitutions and improvisations there at mass. Uh, what what is written we need to do. What is what and what is written to say we need to say, and there is very little wiggle room there um, in any parts of the mass. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's very very powerful and important. Yeah. As well as just a refresher, you know, just because again I can go to different parishes, and again a big reason. The last thing I'll say quickly is the. In my mind, the biggest reason why, personally, and I'll just I'll just say it vulnerably and very upfront, is knowing these things brings out the experience of mass in a way that maybe we've never experienced it before. Yeah. So just in the sense of what we talked about with the genuflection, what's the big deal of one knee versus two knees, George? Come on. <laughs> and there's a, that's a fa- that's a yeah. fair statement. Yeah. That's a fair statement on its face. But when you think about it, if if we genuflect to the altar where the tabernacle is present, but then when he, when Jesus is exposed, when he is truly exposing himself, we, for our king, go on both knees. Yeah. That shows to someone who may not be familiar with our Catholic Church, something special is happening because they're on two knees and not one. Right. Whereas for the other faithful, too, going on two knees and a little extra effort, um, is very much a powerful witness to I understand what's in front of me, yeah. and and that in and of itself might be the 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 very thing that helps us grow closer to God, and that's why the church asks us to do not to regulate us to the point of you know drive us crazy as as I think what some would say why don't they just leave us alone, but rather they they give us these things because like any good teacher there's certain behaviors that when you do them it actually enhances the learning experience, and that's exactly what's going on here. Yeah. And I, I would add to, you know, to 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 continue your analogy and your thought here, you know, with the dance and, you know, the beauty of the dance. When when we're all in sync, there's a beauty there out on the dance floor. And when we're all in sync at mass, it can be, you know, here in Hayes, Kansas, it can be in India, it can be anywhere. We're in sync and we are we are all in the same postures, in the same, you know, in quotes, the same dance and that brings a beauty in, in both to the Mass and to the unity of the people at the Mass. Yeah, you bet. So um, the um, the question, also the answer there real quick for us, it's, gonna, it's, it's a nice segue into what I'm about ready to talk about, which is sure. why, yeah. which I want, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it says, according to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, the Oren's posture, which includes the uplifting of hands during certain parts of the Mass, are intended for whom? And the answer is, A, the priest only. It is inappropriate for the congregation, no matter how well-meaning, to mimic the priest's personification of Christ. Perfect. Okay, so I'm actually going to explain that here. Okay. Because I know that this brings up some pretty sensitive uh, debates in the parish council sometimes. Um, and I know that for some priests that sometimes it's just like, hey, you know, for pastoral sensitivity reasons, we won't talk about it because people are up in arms over, you know, using their own posture. And it doesn't happen all the time, but I know that um, especially when there might be a crowd of the con- or part of the congregation that, that maybe reads up on this stuff and maybe the others that 
uh, may not know why they do what they do. There becomes a conflict. So I'm going to give you the answers, both sides here, and then be able to help us kind of understand what's going on. So in, in order to, to kind of set the stage, it's important to know what that Iran's posture is at its core. Mm-hmm. Like, why, like, why does the priest do it to begin with? Yeah. And I think some, um, I know that people who mock the church kind of, um, oh, is the priest trying to bird flop away or something? And it's like, really, guys? Like, come on. <laughs> but um, but the, the posture has significance. And so in the technical terms of doing the posture, when the so like, for instance, at the opening prayer, the opening collect, I should say, at Mass, right before we hear the opening readings, you will notice that the priest, he'll say, let us pray, his hands come together, folded, and then they go out shoulder width with his palms outward. That's the Oran's posture. It's actually kind of a, of a movement, for lack of a, of a better term, properly done. So the hands come together, and then they come out, and then the prayer or whatever is said. And like was said in the trivia question, that, that posture is reserved primarily for the priests. But why is that so? Well, this is going back even to um, older versions of how the Mass was said, but the Oran's posture is signifying the distinct responsibility of the priest in that he serves in persona Christi or in the person of Christ and serves as a reminder for us that when our prayers are being received to Christ and ultimately that through Christ crucified they go to the Father, which, by the way, that's the pathway uh, that we get anything answered, right, is that our needs go to Christ crucified and then through Christ crucified up to the Father. That's, that's the pathway of any prayer being answered. The priest in that Aaron's posture is representing the cross. He's representing Christ crucified. So that is a, that's why when he prays, when the Aaron's posture is made by the priest, it's never made by the deacon. If you pay close attention to your deacon, he will never, he will never do this posture because it's solely reserved for the priest. That movement of when he's doing the opening collect, the Eucharistic prayer, all those important moments, the Aaron's posture show, should signal to all of us as a faithful that all of our needs in that moment is being received by Jesus Christ, who the priest stands in persona Christi. He stands, um, you know, as, as, as the person of, and then goes directly to the Father. That's why the priest is so important, because how the, the, um, how the nat- or I should say how the supernatural order is, for lack of a better phrase here, the priest has the specific and dignified duty to bring Christ, pre- the priest needs to bring Christ to the people, and he has been given authority by Christ through the Church to be able to do things that we cannot do, such as pure confessions and obviously say, say Mass. And even though he is not the one who is absolving our sins or bringing Christ down in the bread and wine, that's Jesus. He serves as his direct minister in order to do so. He has that authority. So again, the Oran's posture is our signal, it's our sign of the reality of what's happening that all of our needs at that moment are going through Christ crucified to God the Father in a pleasing way, and the priest in that posture reminds us that that is what is happening in that moment. So now that brings to the next question of the Lord's Prayer and why some have argued we don't do the Aaron's posture and others say we, you know, it's perfectly fine, why do you, you know, why do you care there's more important things in the world to worry about. Yeah. So I'm going to give both sides of the, of the, 
equation here because I think it's important um, to be fair. Going to what we said earlier in terms of that there are specific postures reserved solely for the priest, going back to that notion, the Oran's posture, again, is a, is a, a, a posture that essentially is, is, is meant for the priest there. So because of that, similar to that the deacon does not do that same posture as well, and he's an ordained minister, we're not, but the deacon still doesn't engage in that Oran's posture, in using that logic, it's proper for us to not use that posture and use, like, folding hands or something like that, maybe in those moments. Now, on the flip side, to be completely fair to those that are like, what's going on? Come on, now we've been doing this for years, and, you know, what's going on? At least to my research, and if there's another priest or other lay person that knows of something, you can, you know, can get this corrected. But at least what I was able to look up in the month and start preparing for this. I could not find an exact papal document or church document that explicitly forbids the Aran's posture during the Lord's Prayer. So I couldn't find anything in my research that said, you cannot do this on a strict like law basis, if you will. However, at the same exact time, there was nothing, I'll put it plainly, the church was a little bit maybe silent on, on this per se, because I think and this is my guess, so this is me talking out loud, and I'm not a theologian, this is just George Toman, so you can throw the tomatoes at me. Because the Church has already said in a formal document that lay people and deacons are not to join in postures reserved solely for the priest, my thought is, is that that extends over to things like the Oran, the Oran's posture, maybe assumed or whatever. I mean, maybe the Church has not felt that that was something to just put the hammer on, especially if it's been happening for multiple decades. Um, so the point I'm, I'm trying to bring out is this, if you are, if this is the first time you're learning about this, then it's not like you're doing anything quote unquote wrong out of like complete, um, willful disobedience to the church or anything like that. Um, again, the church does not forbid us exactly like in a, like a law, if you will. But I would say that the church is very clear that the, the roles of the priest should be for the priest and the roles of the faithful should be for the faithful. Um, so with that all said, I would, and this is me now talking out loud, so throw the tomatoes at me, not at your priest or whatever, you can throw them at, throw them at me here. I think a, a, the best way to understand how to use the Aran's posture is that is a posture for the priest because of what it signifies, right? It signifies Christ crucified, that our needs and intentions are going through the priest, or through Christ to God the Father, and the priest serves in a unique role to represent that. Mm -hmm. That's why we need a priest, is because he is the one that provides us the sacraments that Christ desires us to have, One of the, and the, the most important one being the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the Holy Eucharist. So that's where I would lean. So hold, holding hands folded um, and together is, is probably more appropriate in the Lord's Prayer. I will say that holding hands and maybe the excessive use of, like, doing, um, like, holding the hands of the person in the row behind you or in front of you, where you're kind of, your hands are kind of, like, really far extended or whatever, um, that's nowhere in the rubrics of the Church. Um, that might be a little bit excessive. Um, but, again, I would say prayerfully discern, if this is striking at your heart, prayerfully discern why we do what we do at Mass, is essentially what I'm trying to get at. Right. You know, if the Oran's posture, again, because it's reserved for the priest, in the sense that it is signifying something that's much more than just hands folded, if you will. It's it's Christ or it's, it's Jesus Christ um, in the presence of that priest receiving our prayers and offering them perfectly to the Father. 
Um, I think again, a, an appropriate posture um, would be not to not to engage in that Iran's position. However, again, I'm being very sensitive, and my psychology is now um, at full force because I know that for a lot of people, um, and I, if I, if I had discussions with them, you know, like like this is not something that they want to change. They think it's it's more fulfilling or whatever. I would say again, when you know the when you know the reason why we do what we do. I think that has a different a different um, tone and reason why we would do the Iran's posture. Last thing is this, I, and I should mention this for those of us who out there who may be attending like the traditional Catholic mass and other things that see something a little differently at this time. So in the Lord's Prayer, we say it immediately after the Eucharistic prayer and right before we receive our Lord in the Eucharist, so before the Agnus Dei or the Lamb of God. And typically throughout the history of the Church, that position of the Lord's Prayer between the, the invocation of, of the Holy Spirit for God to come down and be truly manifest in the, in the gifts, the Eucharistic prayer, and then before the Lamb of God, that position for the, the Lord's Prayer has, has typically um, been consistent for, for a while. And one of the reasons for that is because the Lord's Prayer is the perfect prayer, right? It's the perfect prayer that that our Lord himself instructed us to pray. And similar to what I said earlier, that the priest serving in the person of Christ takes, again, Jesus Christ himself through the priest, takes all of our needs through the cross, through him crucified, and offers them directly to the Father. So in the old, not old, but in the traditional versions of the Mass, the priest would actually recite the, the Lord's Prayer by himself. The congregation would not participate with them. The priest would say, in Latin, our Father who art in heaven, and usually chant it, in the Oran's posture. That was, again, to signify that direct movement through the priest, Christ crucified, up to God the Father, of all of our needs being perfectly received by God, God the Father, um, right before our reception of the Holy, the Holy Eucharist. I say that because, again, that shows that continuity of what that movement is supposed to be at the end of the day, uh, but again, I want to be very sensitive to those who, again, might be, might very well say, "No, this is how we do it." All I would ask is, if that if that is if that is the case, just think about again um, why we do why we do what we do. And for those of us who, and I'm guilty of this, so I'm just going to say it on my own, mea culpa. For those of us who do maybe understand the position in its proper place in terms of the liturgy, um, to maybe be a little more charitable, too. Um, I know I haven't in my history um, of just hearing the other side of the story, if you will. All for the intention of, again, being able to um, willfully and more actively participate in the, in the beauties of the Mass, mm -hmm. um, and maybe that we haven't before. So, And this actually relates to something that, unfortunately, is going to be happening in the next couple of days. So um, for those that may not know, in Boston this weekend, there is going to be um, what is projected to be the largest gathering of Satan worshipers or Satanists <sighs> in the history of the world. They're going to come down on Boston. Supposedly there's a little under a thousand, at least what I'm reading. Who knows if those are accurate or not? Could be more, could be less. But put it plainly, um, they're not going to do very holy things. It, it, it's, there's a lot of worry about what's going to happen. Um, for a variety of reasons, that in fact the, the Archdiocese of Boston in the beginning of, of April formalized instruction on priests and the lay faithful on what to do for this weekend, mm -hmm. um, to communicate it clearly. And primarily what they said was 
for the lay faithful to um, to to ask God in, in reparation for the sins that will be committed against the Sacred Heart, um, to be very sensitive to distribution of the Eucharist and, and other things. And, th- and I want to talk about that here kind of in, in light of that. One, please say a prayer for all those that are going to attend and those being impacting, because again, that that's um, that's a very scary, very scary. Uh, uh, not, not I, sh- I shouldn't say scary. It is scary to the to to a certain degree. But um, again, the the infiltration of evil is not like we need more of it. So um, we, you know, he's saying some prayers to to help kind of negate what's going to happen on the spiritual level. But most importantly, in the diocese of the United States. We are allowed at communion, um, in particular the sacred host, to receive it by hand or by tongue. And because of time and other things, that's a whole other talk about, you know, the history behind reception of communion. I, the reason I want to bring it up today for us is because, for example, in Boston, one of the reasons why the instruction was given by the auxiliary bishop and others to be sure that priests are very careful and also the Eucharistic ministers to be very careful of distributing the Eucharist is because people don't sometimes don't have the best intentions for our Lord in the Eucharist. Mm. Sometimes if they if they receive our Lord, they won't immediately consume him. In fact, they just hide him in their bag and then um, in the most extreme and disgusting form, uh, use the Eucharist in, in what's called a black mass, which is a ritual for um, Satanists, and they need to get their hands on an actual consecrated host in order to pull it off. And I won't even go through how much evil is, is embedded there. Yeah. But you can fill in the dots that it's very, very um, disgusting in, in multiple ways. But the point, the reason why I'm bringing this out is when you go to Mass and receive, our ch- the Church is very clear. Um, if you receive on the tongue, to be sure that you consume immediately or are in a proper posture to receive, so that's why we typically have kneelers, or we encourage the recipient to kneel, um, because it's easier for the priest or the um, extraordinary minister to to put the, the host on the tongue that way. If you receive on the hand, which is why I know what a lot of us do, to be sure that you immediately consume the host, don't just walk off and then receive it in your pew or whatever. Um, again, as evil continues to rise in the world, um, we don't know, and and. and I, I serve a, I'm an installed acolyte for the Diocese of Lincoln, and so we have the, we're essentially also extraordinary ministers of communion at Mass. One of my duties is to watch you to be sure that if you receive it on the hand, that you consume the Eucharist immediately. And if you don't consume the Eucharist as you're walking away from me, I do have the, the um, not right, but I do have, if you will, kind of the authority to kind of get out of my way and encourage you to consume the Eucharist immediately, yeah. because we don't want our Lord just leaving the parish, um, because, again, people do bad things with our Lord, yeah. um, bad intentions, and we don't know about it. Yeah. Um, not saying that you will, but, again, just know in the back of our minds, especially, especially for priests, they may be thinking that. So receiving our Lord, because we can both receive it in the tongue and on the hand to be sure that we are immediately consuming Him, um, and also if you're receiving on the hand, is best to also take a look at your palm and be sure if there are any particles that you also consume them immediately as well. And the last thing I want to say is do not leave Mass early. So after communion, um, the Mass is not over yet. Mass is over when the final blessing is given. So just as a little reminder, please do not leave Mass um, at communion. Um, you could technically, by definition, leave at the recessional hymn, because, again, once the final blessing is given by the priest, Mass is over, 
And so you could leave at that time if, if you wanted to, but please do not leave early at Mass, uh, because remember, Judas did too, and look at what I'd ended up with him. Mm, so mm. leave leave Mass um, at the appropriate time, spend that extra five minutes. You are missing out on innumerable graces, and the full participation of the Mass, especially receiving from beginning to end the blessing of Almighty God. Yes. Um, that, that in and of itself is going to do you far greater things than leaving early to maybe miss the traffic or get to see the ball game. So please, 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 as a, as a, as a brother in Christ, consider staying for the entire time and encourage others around you as you feel appropriate to do so if they're leaving um, right at communion, because Mass isn't over at that point. So um, again, the reason why we do this is if, you know, this is maybe a nice refresher for some of us, for others this might be brand new, but really if we can take at least one thing away to help us really appreciate the wonders and glory of the Mass, then um, I think we should do that because the Mass is the most important thing um, for us to, to have all of our needs met and also for our spiritual well-being. And quite frankly, um, the, world needs, the world needs a lot of Jesus these days, and, the, and faithful participation at Mass is a great way to show the world that Jesus means something. And I promise you people are noticing that at your work or in your communities, and you might be, just maybe, as what Mother Angelica say, the one person to help people um, come back to the Church. Um, so that's all I have. So again, please donate. We need your money. Um, we need your prayers as well, but we need your money. And um, please continue to support Catholic Radio. And um, yeah, it's it's a great ministry. It's a, it's a great thing to have. So, um, but that's it. That's it for me this morning. Beautiful. Thank you. You um, amazing. Uh, all of the information that you shared. Really appreciative of that. We were talking with George Toman about holiness through mass postures. George, would you be willing to lead us in a prayer? Of course, absolutely. Thank you. In the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We give you glory, God Almighty, for the gifts that you bestowed upon us, and the gift of your Holy Spirit that is infused within us and desires us to do great things with your gifts. We thank all of those who have supported this station, who will continue to support this station through their prayers and through their, their monetary donations. And we particularly ask um, for your blessing upon us this, this week, for Divine Mercy Radio, and thank you for the blessings that you have given us. As we say, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. It was really wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for giving us your, your time today. Nope, you bet. Thank you so much. God bless you. Take care. Thank you. You too. Thanks for tuning in to One Body, Stewarding God's Creation. Folks, heaven is unseen, but so are these airwaves. If you can support these unseen airwaves and help save souls for heaven, go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate, where your donation will be seen and appreciated. You're listening to the Network of Stations of Divine Mercy Radio. If today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. One body.